0: Recently released Q3 numbers show that investment volumes are still dropping across all property types. But with inflation leveling out, CBRE recently predicted the Federal Reserve may begin cutting interest rates as soon as March of 24, which could drive investment activity recovery by mid-24. Go to junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word to learn more about these and other CRE market trends, including why the U.S. market still strongly appeals to international investors and the boom in private credit. Again, that's junipersquare.com forward slash state of real estate, all one word, to learn more. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity, to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Dave Eisenberg, founding partner at Zig Capital. Zig is a venture capital firm with a sector focus on technologies intersecting real estate, construction, and retail. Prior to Zig, Dave served as the Global Senior Vice President of Technology of CBRE Group after CBRE's acquisition of Floored, a technology company he founded. Earlier in his career, he was a founding team member of two retail technology businesses, Telepart, which was acquired by Twitter, and Bonobos, which was acquired by Walmart. On today's episode, we discuss the advice that Dave would give to young people looking to get into technology, what it means to be a modern business person, and how to evolve your approach to thinking as it relates to the adoption of new technologies, what capital sources are most likely and best positioned to fund the VC community going forward, and how tech is eating part of the service economy, and what that means for our industry. Let's get into it. Dave, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start all my podcasts with having our guests introduce themselves. Can you please talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, and tell us a little bit more about your organization? Absolutely.
1: Come a long way since I think I helped introduce you to Juniper Square about a decade ago. So it's uh, it's great to do full circle here. So for those who I haven't met listening on the podcast, my name is Dave Eisenberg. Uh, I run a venture capital firm called Zig Capital, Z-I-G-G. We are a specialist venture capital firm, meaning we don't invest in every type of technology company. We limit our focus to primarily software companies interacting in real estate, construction, and the retail industries. And that firm was founded uh, five years ago uh, in 2018. I had spent the previous 12 years working as a operator in technology companies. The start of my career, after a, a brief stint at Bain & Company, I was the first employee at Bonobos, direct-to-consumer retail company. I then moved to Silicon Valley, where I worked on the ad tech side of retail uh, with a company called Telepart. That was one of those companies that not so many people have heard of, but had a wonderfully successful financial outcome. Uh, It was actually Twitter's largest acquisition of a private tech company. And then I joined the venture firm Excel Partners as an entrepreneur in residence, where I really wanted to study the categories that I thought would be similar to retail over the next decade, in terms of how much money they were going to spend on innovation and R and D, the retail industry had started to spend a lot of its money, its revenues on R and D because of the presence of Amazon and, and really how disruptive Amazon and Shopify were. And I was waiting for what big industries would that happen next to the, the three big categories. I spent time looking at were healthcare, real estate, and construction real estate and construction being very related to one another healthcare being something i was totally unqualified to to go and evaluate i ended up deciding to focus on construction and real estate and started a software company called floored that grew uh, over about a 5 year period and we were acquired by cbre which is really one of the first major times that they had acquired a, a technology business and it was inside of cbre i started thinking about potentially creating a venture firm that would specialize in this category I had been kind of a hobbyist angel investor. I'd been a small scale venture manager with my old boss from Bonobos, Andy Dunn. We had started a firm called Red Swan Ventures that had made some early investments in some good companies in the category Warby Parker, Procore, and others. And that I think gave me the confidence to go and do this full time. So in 2019, we raised our first fund, which was $100 million. In twenty twenty one, we raised our second fund, which is two hundred and twenty-five. And and we're sort of towards the tail end of raising our third fund right now.
0: So you've had a career that spanned from, you know, direct to consumer to ad tech to construction or real estate in Florida. As you reflect back on, you know, the last 15 or so years professionally, kind of what are some of the big kind of differentiators between each of those chapters of your kind of professional operating and investing life?
1: It's an interesting question because they they intersected with different moments in kind of the broader tech ecosystem. So, you know, in 2008, I think Bonobos was the third ever advertiser to use the Facebook API. And that was because the guy who was running that program had gone to Stanford Business School with the founder, so we just were like part of the friends and family trial, and we were acquiring customers for cents on the dollar at the time, and that got outcompeted real fast. And then you sort of had this mobile explosion, you know, as the iPhone started getting distribution, and that changed the way a lot of ad tech, you know, happened, uh, given that consumer shopping started shifting relatively rapidly, you know, to the phone. So, so I would say, for me personally. Bonobos was my introduction to startups generally. It seemed like startups were a lot more fun than the traditional corporate world where I began my career. Telepart, which is the name of the ad tech business, that was really about seeing what Silicon Valley deeper technology was like. You know, instead of e where where tech is sort of one piece of the equation, but brand is another and marketing, at Telepart, it was really about building relatively proprietary software that was expensive to build and hard to build and hard for others to replicate and i think it just gave me a flavor for the silicon valley way of building companies too you know very heavy r and d expenditure with really incredibly talented software engineering product management and having that be the true core of the product uh, i moved back to new york the the girl i wanted to marry you know was sort of set on coming back here. We did end up getting married. We now have three kids. So that, that was a good, a good life, you know, choice and and forecast for me. But I think in New York, New York had been less well known for sort of deep tech startups. And that was really what I wanted to build at Florida. And I I do think we built an exceptionally talented engineering team that, that was part of the reason why I think there were a few groups that wanted to acquire our business at the end. But I think each piece was kind of finding my way. Into type of business model. I learned I liked B2B more than B2C. With Floored, I learned what it was like to be CEO. And, and ultimately I realized that I liked investing more than operating. That that was like a big life realization. I think great operators are exceptionally detail oriented. I'm not that detail oriented as a person. I'm a little bit more high-level, you know, a little bit more idea and sort of theory generated in terms of where I get my my energy from and so investing kind of fit that mold and and i think the way that the world was moving when we set up zig it was moving from venture having been a relatively boutique sort of hobby maybe even just like a small industry you know in terms of the size of the funds and the number of funds to being a much larger player in the global capital markets in terms of the size of the funds the diversity of the strategies that those funds offer the types of LPs that were investing in those funds. And it it was a good time, I think, to establish oneself as a specialist player where you could really draw a bit of a distinction between what I'll call sort of like mega cap venture, you know, billions, if not tens of billions of AUM, multiple strategy, very large teams from some of the older style of venture firms that were a little bit more craft-like in terms of the number of hires, the amount of money that they manage and so
0: forth. We'll come back to talking a little bit more about the specialist venture investing style later. But before we do, you kind of very eloquently glossed over, you know, you had a you had a great outcome at the technology company, and then you went in-house at Excel, and then you decided you wanted to be the CEO of an operating business called Floored. What did that transition look like? Because now with the benefit of hindsight... You know that you like being an investor better than an operator, but at the time, I'm sure you know it wasn't just an overnight decision. I'm going to move from being in house to starting my own business. Kind of talk talk to us a little bit about kind of how you how you developed the confidence in the thesis, and then ultimately took the jump to go out on your own and start to build Floored from the ground up.
1: I think some of the advice I give people earlier in their careers who are thinking about getting into startups for the first time hinges upon the quality of the person that they're able to go get a job working for. And I think I was very lucky that I had two extremely high quality people to work for at both Bonobos and Telepart, but they had very, very different management styles. One of them was very into delegating and sort of scaling via delegation, not doing the work. The other was really into doing the work in a very hands-on way and was less focused on delegation and scaling. And so by the time that I had been an early employee at two successful startups, I was super curious to try my hand at running one. I, I really thought that I could take a little bit of the best of each of their styles and form my own style. And I really am grateful that I got a chance to do it. What, what I think I learned about myself is just how difficult people management is at different levels of scale. You know. At five people, you're really kind of each your own individual contributor at twenty you've got your first level of management at fifty you've got like potentially a few levels of management then inside Siberia, I had about hundred people you know in my in my organization and and that was like a really hard challenge for me not knowing all of the people personally, not knowing exactly how to scale you know and setting up layers and you know, CBRE, when I was there, it probably had 80,000 global employees. And so I got to spend some time with the leadership there who who are really quite extraordinary at running a company in a super professional, almost like military style level efficiency that looks a lot more similar to running a small nation state than it does anything else. And and that was eye-opening for me. How much time went into designing those management structures and cultivating them and and really honing ones i think like skill as a people manager i found the people management side at at those larger scales to be more draining than i would have guessed i, I think i self identify as an extrovert but what i found is that so much of great management is almost being a bit more introverted and learning about what's driving people what's motivating them how to get more activity out of people how to navigate these like interpersonal conflicts that were happening out of sight in your organization, but were happening. And I just found myself really craving a smaller team once again, but there are very few corporate jobs where you can thrive by being, by, by going smaller. And, and I thought investing was one of those areas where you could buy design, be a small group and stay as a small group yet still be successful and raise subsequent funds, maybe even like grow your, you know, your asset center management. And And so for me, It was a little bit of a realization that I wasn't as happy doing scaled management as I thought I might be. And then it was a little bit just about how much I was thriving on the intellectual variety of dealing with a portfolio of 20 companies versus being kind of maniacally focused on doing one thing really well, which I think is very required to be an elite executive.
0: So that's a good transition to Zig. So you talked a little bit about the founding, you know, tell us in uh, the different funds that you have, I think you're on your, you're raising your third fund right now. Tell tell us a little bit about the organization, the design, portfolio, composition, you know, any details that you can share to help us frame up the rest of our conversation would be great.
1: So as a firm, uh, we've got five investors. Uh, we're headquartered out of New York. We invest around the world Got maybe 10% of our portfolios outside the US, but the bulk of it is in the States where our network is strongest. We tend to prefer the kind of high margin, high virality network effects segment of the prop tech ecosystem. Our best investments historically have exhibited those types of characteristics. Companies like Procor, Snapdocs, Juniper Square was an early investment of ours. I should probably disclose earlier in the podcast rather than later. We uh, were investors in open space in the construction segment. Th- those types of companies, which tend to have a lot of demand from generalist investors, that that was more our style versus, say, what some people think of with prop tech, co-working, co-living, accessory dwelling unit production, things like that. That I, I sometimes put more in the camp of being a real estate innovation than being a technology company. First and foremost, that that's less of what we focus on versus. Kind of the enterprise software, the consumer fintech, the marketplaces—that that's really where where we like to spend our time, and I I think where we're relatively better at investing as well. We've tried to keep our fund sizes in line with what we believe the opportunity yields, which for us is we will lead pre-seed, seed, and Series A investments. Although those terms all kind of ceased to make sense, you know, during the the crazy boom times in venture. But I think in general. Investing at enterprise values, you know, under 50 million or so, trying to buy an institutional sized ownership stake of 10 to 20%. That, that's really what our model is. We, we will reserve capital to follow on in our best businesses. And we, we do try to actually concentrate our follow on capital in, in a handful of positions per fund. But each fund is roughly 20 to 25 companies. We have around 6 or 700 million under management now across the different vehicles and and I think that that feels right you know we we raise a fund every 3 years or so and I think we're very fortunate that especially as the macro climate has has become harder for real estate and certainly for raising funds in venture we've got a very stable sort of core base of institutional lps from sovereign wealth funds to a big international fund-to-funds platform, multifamily offices, and so forth. And I think we're fortunate that we chose groups that have a lot of facility in investing in venture and have done it over and over again, rather than at times we've been offered a lot of money from the real estate industry. And my concern, I think, has played out, which is that I think the real estate industry is a little bit fickle as LPs in real estate technology funds. When there was a lot of capital available and the markets were relatively slower, you know, in real estate, I think there was a lot of investing in venture. I think now that interest rates have risen so dramatically, so quickly, some of that capital is being pulled back just into the core business. Um, certainly I think in commercial and retail real estate, there's a bit of a retrenchment to just kind of focus on defending, you know, one's value. I think in, in multifamily, it, it's remained a strong market although you are seeing some pullback there as well in investing in in venture funds i would separate that from actual investment in technology because i think one of our big themes of this year is that what higher interest rates are are uh, wrecking upon the real estate industry is higher costs everywhere higher labor costs higher borrowing costs Higher energy costs, higher in, insurance costs, and all of that is happening while demand is moderating in a bunch of sub asset classes. And that just creates tremendous profit pressure on your net operating income. And, and our belief is that one of the best ways to relieve that pressure is by investing in automation and, and streamlining operations. You know, everything from streamlining your leasing operations to streamlining how you get insurance priced and and placed to streamlining your fund administration processes. Like, you know, th- those are all areas that are very fertile for software, particularly intelligent software that that doesn't require people to sort of click all the buttons. And, and I think with what we're seeing in this sort of blooming area of AI, like that's just going to be a very exciting place to invest over the next few years. So to kind of sum it up, you know, Zig is really focused on finding the best global technology opportunities that are touching real estate, construction, or retail. We we try to capture those opportunities early and we try to lead those companies to successful exits either via public offerings or or via industry eminent.
0: So one of the things that's happened over the last decade or decade and a half has been the proliferation of technology designed to serve the real estate and construction industries in particular. And I think we've kind of gone through the adoption curve to You know, now to getting to a point where technology is fairly widely adopted, albeit with a lot of room to run. But there's so many point solutions, there's so many incremental solutions. And what we often hear from the customers of these different technologies and services is, you know, there's just, I'm overwhelmed with the number of available options, all of which seem to be doing the same thing, some slightly better, some slightly worse. When you think about your thesis, around how you get the flywheel going and how you find and invest in great technology companies. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you go about finding these the firms that you want to invest with or how do they find you? So the way that we source
1: deals is maybe helpful to talk about. It's It's actually reasonably evenly distributed. I think people are always surprised that it works out this neatly, but about a third of the time they do find us and that's because you know we're one of a handful of firms that i think are known to specialize in the area and they'll reach out directly or they'll reach out with a warm intro which is often even best sometimes our founders will flag a company for us that they think is interesting that maybe a former employee of theirs works for them. A third of the time we'll get a deal from another investor. So that'll be either an investor that's behind later stage than us sending us an early stage deal, or it could be an angel investor or a pre-seed investor who's sending us a deal to look at for the seed or the series A or B. And then a third of the time we have to hunt for these startups before it's well known that they're fundraising. And that could be talking with somebody who's thinking about leaving to go do a new startup. It could be seeing a company at an accelerator program before they're generally fundraising. It could be going to a cocktail party and like overhearing that someone's you know starting a new company. Like it's really as wide ranging as that. And some of our best stories are kind of the the weirdest or most unlikely ways of finding, you know, startups that are that are not yet in market but are thinking about raising capital soon. So that's a little bit about kind of at the firm level, you know how we how we source deals.
0: That was that was the perfect answer to that question. And I think the follow on question would be, where do you think we are with respect to kind of the proliferation of technology for this specific segment, whether it's real estate, real assets, the built environment, etc. Do we have enough? Do we need more? Like, where do where are we on the continuum of innovation against adoption versus utilization?
1: So I probably would be a bad Venture investor, if I ever said we have enough startups, you know, in the category. I, I think I'm empathetic to the customer experience of feeling like they're being constantly solicited by a ton of things that look relatively similar. I, I would put that challenge on both the startup side for needing to figure out how to rise above the noise, you know, h- how to differentiate yourself on. The marketing side, the sales side, or the product experience such that you're getting some level of viral growth. You don't have to sell it all yourself. I would also put some of the challenge on the recipients of those pitches. I just think that this is part of being a modern business person is that you are going to get solicited a lot by technology companies that believe that they have a better way of doing stuff than what you're currently doing. And I think learning how to filter through that yourself and maybe not taking An intro sales call with every single one, or maybe learning to rely on other cues of quality based on how they're getting to you or they're being referred to you. I I do think that that's important. I do feel in the real estate or construction industries, people are perhaps used to the way that it used to be, where there'd be very few companies that would be reaching out to you saying, "I have a better mousetrap" versus you know what you've done historically. To just this being the way that most of corporate America like experiences. Tech and sales pitches and so forth, and I believe that it's a good thing that we have a lot of velocity in how many companies are being created. There's also a lot of company failures that you never hear about, but you know, I think it, it just happens all the time in our our business. But the level of sort of dynamism of companies being created, companies failing, like that's a healthy thing in an economy, and I, I think we should be open to change as just part of. The 21st century toolkit for how to be you know, in a world where software changes really fast. And something that was great for your business 10 years ago might mean that it's not great for your business for the next 10 years. And I think there needs to be a bit of a more openness to change from the real estate construction and retail industries. Because otherwise, what ends up happening is that you just get out-competed very quickly. And this happened in retail. And I think it's happening a bit in real estate today with the after effects of COVID plus the higher interest rate environment, there are just new, new concepts, new operators that are taking market share relatively quickly from the old guard. And I think at the firm level, we're trying to capitalize on that value transfer and, and back the companies that are going to participate in the future of the asset class.
0: Where, where are you seeing the greatest adoption right now? And where's the flywheel spinning the fastest to use your analogy?
1: I think in categories that are in a high degree of stress, I think the rate at which they are reducing their costs by turning to automation is is happening the fastest. So I would say the mortgage tech industry right now is under a lot of stress. This is the worst mortgage market in 30 years. And I think that a lot of lenders are trying to transform their operations in real time and and really radically reduce their costs. And a lot of the way that they're going to be able to do that is by partnering with best in breed mortgage technology solutions that are more modern, they're lower cost, they're cloud-based, they've got more automation, AI baked into them. So so that's, I think, one area of like particularly acute growth that's happening now i also believe this is happening in the in the broader construction industry just due to there being a big demographic turnover that's happening right now basically the us population the the distribution of folks on the on the right tail of that age distribution are actually overrepresented in construction and in and in real estate and i think there's like a wave of retirements that are happening that are bringing a new guard to leadership there. And a lot of those folks are trying to digitize their organizations. And so companies like Open Space, we have a construction fintech investment called Finvari that's growing exceptionally well. And I think a lot of it is just the ease of use has gotten a lot better. And I believe the ROI is really strong for a lot of these uh, construction solutions. Handle is another one in our portfolio. And, and I believe that that's just going to continue to be the case for, for the next few years
0: and as you look forward are there specific verticals or niche you know niches if you will within your specialized focus area where the flywheel is not spinning yet but you're hoping you kind of overhear that next cocktail conversation because it fits with your headline thesis
1: i think there's a few categories that have been stubborn and resistant to to modernization I think a lot of things connected to residential real estate brokerage have have kind of been, been in that camp. Although, you know, to, to folks like Compass's Credit or we've got a portfolio company called Avenue 8, you know, I think that there is a slow evolution of what the broker of the future is going to be expected to do. And, and that is happening, you know, as we speak. I believe that some segments of the population, like we have a few insurance related bets I think their selling to the incumbents is proving to be much slower than just starting a challenger brand. C- kind of like what the NeoBanks did in consumer fintech. You're you're gonna see similar effect play out. I, I believe we we have a big bet in the landlord insurance category in a company called Steadily. And I think we just feel like the product velocity at Steadily is so much better than what you'd find from a progressive or a state farm, et cetera, that it's it's more likely that we're going to actually win that category than the incumbents.
0: Just from my own edification, since I just came from an institutional real estate conference where one of the big topics was the rise in operational costs, and one of those was around insurance, is steadily focused on kind of captive policies for existing landlords, or is it an alternative to the traditional providers?
1: So, Steadily is focused on the landlord insurance market in the single family rental category. So, they're a little bit more towards the SMB segment rather than sort of the broad portfolios of SFR owners. Our portfolio company, Archipelago, is really focused on the institutional asset owner segment. And they're really more focused on the placements of very, very large policies for the Blackstones of the world, the Brookfields of the world, et cetera. And so I think what Archipelago has been able to document is that the rate of increases in these premiums is is quite unprecedented. And what they sort of seek to do with their software is to mitigate a lot of those rises by automating a lot of the operations that go into getting a policy placed across a bunch of different providers.
0: All right. Well, changing gears. Let's talk a little bit about portfolio construction, you know, from, you know, we work with real estate clients, but we also work with a lot of venture capital firms in the market, as you know. And one of the things that we hear a lot from our customers is that portfolio construction is a really kind of underappreciated element of how to run a VC. You talked a little bit about your investment thesis. You talked a little bit about your sourcing. How would you describe your approach to portfolio construction and maybe specifically how does how is that impacted by kind of this idea of vintage year when you're talking, you know, vintage funds, vintage year, when you're talking to different potential investors about their interest in in working with you all?
1: So our view at the highest level of abstraction is every year, we believe there's a certain number of companies that are created or funded in our category. And our job as a, as a specialist fund is to try to cover as much of that terrain as we can, and to identify, let's call it the top 1% of opportunities in that category where we try to pursue and make an investment. So let's just for simple math, say that there's a thousand companies created or funded per year, and our job is to find the top 10 investments out of that basket. If we do that over, let's say a two and a half year period, you've roughly got a portfolio of 25 companies, we don't win every single investment that we pursue. We try to win as many of them as possible. And we don't always pick that it's perfectly in the top 1%. Maybe it's the top 5% or so forth. But let's just, for simplicity's sake, say that if we're good at our job, we've captured the top 1% of investable opportunities that year. And over the course of a fund's investment period, we have built a portfolio of 20 to 25 names. A year or two in post-investment, you should have a much better sense of how those companies are performing relative to the entire asset class. you know, Let's just define it as technology companies in the category. But you also have a sense of how they're performing versus one another. So you have an internal knowledge that is really quite proprietary about what you believe are the top five of that 25, You know, the top two of that 25. And, and our job is really to try to concentrate as much capital into our top one, two, three performers in each fund before the general market knows that it is that good because that's when the price you know starts to factor in. And so what we really try to do is as early as we can, where we've recognized that it's possibly the best company of that year, or the best company, you know, of that vintage, to try to put as much capital in, and we'll we'll get to a point where a single position for us might be fifteen to twenty percent of the fund, because it's the, we've got that much conviction that it's it's one of the best ones of the asset uh, of the class. Now that can be subject to some problems when you're investing in a vintage that, as you look over, sort of a cyclical period, can prove to be an unattractive vintage. Certainly, I think we can agree that the vintage of 2020 and 2021 in technology, by looking at where public companies are trading at the time, is going to be a way worse vintage than the 2023 or the 2022 vintage where prices had come down very sharply. And so I think in our fund of that time frame, we tried to get as much time diversity by getting dollars out in the 2022 and the 2023 period Versus sort of what we were faced with in the twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one period where prices were just that much higher across the board, I think that that particular vintage is going to have a lot of asterisks you know on it over the course of time, just with so many factors that were contributing at once to create this massive capital surplus. But I don't think we're going back to that anytime soon. I think where we are right now with higher rates versus this sort of zero interest rate policy and and just the recent memory of a lot of flops in the public market are, are really much more emblematic of the types of the types of vintages that we're going to have going forward. And so it, it's our belief that we're kind of set up to make the best investments that we've ever made right now, versus perhaps where we were a few years ago when we were just trying to hold on, along with a lot of other venture firms, to this ridiculous rate of investments, you know, where every day the list of deals getting announced on term sheet or pro rata was, you know, longer than your desktop screen.
0: Yeah. What do you think about using this asymmetric knowledge, you know, from looking at your portfolio companies to invest around, you know, special situations, or I don't know if there's like a parallel concept of distressed investing, you know, how do you think about that through the lens of an early stage venture investor? Are there opportunities that don't necessarily fit the traditional fund model mold that you're looking to take advantage of over the next few years given the the distress or at least stress in the markets? Absolutely. I I think this is not simple to
1: pull off, but there are many rounds getting done today that have structured terms that to kind of the passerby or the unsophisticated eye are, are really you know, not so extraordinary, but I think for people who are in the venture industry, I'm finding that they're quite extraordinary. You know, deal terms that have ratchets if you don't raise at certain prices by certain time, or deal terms that have highly structured seniority versus the early investors. Th- these are not things that have been present in venture for much of the last 15 years. But probably the most common thing that I think needs to be destigmatized a bit further is the vanilla down round of, I'm just going to raise capital at not weird terms, just at a lower price than what I've done in the past. Yes, it's demoralizing for employees. Yes, it creates challenges with like stock option prices and stuff being underwater, but it is the most similar to what you see in the public markets with just a rapidly fluctuating stock price. The stuff that I think we're most excited about right now are discovering very high quality businesses that were funded at levels in 2021 that are simply nowhere near the levels of where they should be fund today, and actually restructuring those businesses to be set up for success in the future, even if it means some pain for the former investors or the former team members. I, I think that's going to be a very fertile area of capital deployment in terms of the risk reward. There, the challenge is that those investments take more time than traditional regular way investments, and there's more politics involved. You know, between the team and the existing investors, the existing investors and the new investors, and so I think all the stars have to align to pull off something that should get you unusually good venture ownership at a at an unusually good price, and and I'm hopeful. And we're, you know, we're doing one of these deals right now, but I'm hopeful that over the course of the next two, three years, we'll do this a handful of times where that we'll kind of be able to keep our reputation as being a little bit creative on the capital side. We've done this in the past by buying secondary shares at a moment of great dislocation. So we were buying secondary shares right after COVID, you know, hit in March of 2020 And we recently have done it again when there was a big capital pullback and a big liquidity crisis, you know, kind of at the start of this year, end of 22. My hope is that there will continue to be moments where we feel like we've got asymmetric information to do some creative things.
0: And it might be obvious, but in these situations, kind of who are the winners and losers? I mean, you mentioned some of the stigma around a down round and, you know, in the pain for the founders and and the existing leadership teams. But how does this all kind of net out to impact the end consumer and ultimately the end industries that the, you know, the technology is helping to evolve or make more efficient? Uh, like, you know, I, I think for you as a venture capitalist, it's very clear how to structure deals to make them as advantageous for you. I think as technology companies or technologists, people understand the need to capitalize businesses so that they can live another day. But how does this all kind of play out, you know, fast forward two, three years for the rate of adoption for technology in real assets?
1: There was a big subsidy that existed for technology companies to run their business with as much growth as possible without much care for having to have that business be sustainable that subsidy is over for the most part i think the expectation of new dollars that are going into these businesses is that those businesses will be run sustainably meaning they'll generate profits and they will not tolerate you know huge losses not have huge losses i think that creates a level of stability for the business community who's on the customer side of this that's a net positive although it may mean that prices go up you know for some of those folks cuz the subsidy is not yielding you know lower prices i think on the consumer front there's going to just continue to be an army of companies that are trying to improve the consumer experience across a myriad different product lines and and types of spend that the consumer has so i'm not that worried about the consumer just continuing to get lots of new innovation thrown at them i think one of the upshots of all this investment inventure over the last 15, 20 years is just the the giant consumer surplus that has been generated by high cost things being out-competed by free things or low-cost things. I wonder if on some level we may go back towards sort of a more artisanal like consumer internet where people will pay for higher quality things that just have less noise in them, less advertisements, less things designed to steal your data and distraction. That that's one possibility of how the world plays out it's also possible that we're very addicted to free things and that will not play out so one of the reasons we do less you know consumer investing than b2b is just the psychological modeling of the us consumer is is not so simple
0: so when you think about the distress that has existed in the commercial real estate markets since, you know, over the last 18 to 24 months, maybe slightly longer, which is a sector that your portfolio companies are selling into. And then you look at the kind of pricing craziness that's happened in the venture world over the last decade, decade and a half, that's particularly acute in the 2020 through 2022 vintages. You know, where do you think capital will come from for venture capital, venture capitalists like you who are investing in real estate, I think you mentioned earlier in the call that you're seeing less of it come from the actual real estate businesses themselves as the venture capitalists and more from traditional venture capital sources. What does that mean? Yeah, I
1: think it means folks that have an institutional allocation framework that allows them to properly situate high risk, high return investments along a continuum of other things that they're looking at, like higher interest rates, push up the return expectations for everything. If I can get five and a half percent, you know, on a muni bond portfolio or in a money market account, you know, that means that I'm expecting low double digit or teens returns now for my private credit, which means that I'm expecting high teens from my real estate and maybe mid twenties from my opportunistic real estate. and That means I'm expecting a 30%, you know, IRS from my venture. There just aren't that many groups In the world, and I'm talking about like, you know, on the scale of like the US venture ecosystem that can do that in their sleep. And so I think that one artifact of higher interest rates is just there is going to be a culling of the number of groups that are paid to professionally go after these very high risk, high reward instruments. And that's going to yield lower prices into the businesses with less overall capital. And that's going to be a good thing for the asset class. Like the returns from venture are much likely to be higher from dollars that are going out, you know, in the next two, three years than they were. I think that dollars went out the last few years. And, and that's okay. You know, that's good. I think some of the tourist capital in, in this area will be washed out. I ascribe some of that real estate capital as tourist capital. So I think that some of that will go away too. Um, and what we'll be left with is sort of a venture industry that, is sort of in between the size that it was a few years ago and what it was 10 or 15 years ago and and that's that's fine too. I think the groups that are best at this are the groups that understand the technological drivers of different moments in you know in the cycle and I think they're the groups that properly manage the rest of their book and that means properly managing public equities and properly managing their private credit but I don't think that I believe that people are interested in investing in innovation in the United States. Like, that is not a thing that is going to go too far out of vogue because of the returns that are possible when you're serving effectively the global market, you know, from the States. I believe that the prices that people were willing to pay to chase big ideas there will moderate and will, will ha- and already have come down you know quite substantially but I'm not worried about whether there will be capital for these types of strategies there's just going to be less of it and there will be fewer groups that are able to sort of reliably raise you know uh, funds and, and that and that's fine too
0: So shifting gears a little bit, let's say that, you know, there's somebody who's an entrepreneur who's listening to this, who either wants to start a business or has an existing business that needs funding in this environment and they find you or you find them and you get into a conversation, why would they select Zig, right? We've talked a little bit about your focus. We know a little bit about your expertise. We understand kind of some of the dynamics at play, but like, what is it about Zig? Like, what do you offer to your founders and to the teams that you invest with that's different from either some of the tourist money that was willing to write a a big check at a, at a relatively more skewed valuation, you know, as, a, as kind of more of a permanent, permanent invest, venture investor?
1: It's a slightly hard question to answer without coming across as too self-centered or egotistic. I'll, I'll do my best. I think that we as a firm provide a level of, seriousness and rigor and like collegiality and responsiveness that is hard to scale and that rigor manifests in the investment memos that we write and the underwriting that we often share with the companies so that they understand why we're coming out to a certain price or how we're modeling their business going in the future that responsiveness is something that you know provides 24/7 access to all of the investing partners at the firm and where we don't have legacy commitments that sort of require us to to be available to those other groups and not you. I think collegiality is, you know, we're often the same generation or the same level of hunger in our own careers as what our entrepreneurs are facing and I think that's a bit different than someone maybe who has done really well in the last 20 30 years and is maybe in the last decade of their career it's possible that they're in it for different reasons and I think We have tried to build sort of a culture of, you know, direct talk and no BS that I think is, even if it's a little bit painful in a moment of delivering a tough message is is just quite useful for an entrepreneur. We're not trying to inflate people's expectations where it's not tied to to reality. So I think that the reason why people pick us is because they sense all of these things during a fundraising process where we are engaging with them in such a way that they believe it will be a great partner over a five, 10 year period. And then, and then they also call references like that. The th- we almost never lose a deal when people call references on us. And that's either the LPs who have invested with us for the last five years and who call other LPs to figure out what their experience has been like, or it's entrepreneurs who call companies where we've been on the board, you know, for the last four years or so. I think one of the things that I just, think someone should never skip doing is doing references, both on list and off list. I, I think it's the best way to get a prediction of what the future is going to be like, what with working with a person in an inner, you know, an interpersonal relationship. I learned how to do good references from my first boss, Bonobos, who, who just never stopped asking really probing prodding questions until he got the thing that the person on the other line didn't want to say out loud. And that You know, I think there's ways to do that in uh, such that you're not super annoying every time you do a reference. But there is something about the fact that most people go into giving a reference expecting it to be pretty lightweight and expecting to sort of only say like nice, simple things, and those are not particularly useful. I think you really do need to dig to get to the nuggets of truth that are going to give you the secret that you're looking for, both good and bad. And, And oftentimes, I think one of the questions I'll ask is is this person the single best person that you've you know worked with in this capacity and if you force them to go to the the superlative you know you can get them to name the other person who might be the best and why they're second best and and i think it's you know if if the person's hemming and hawing i think you can hear in their voice that this is not the single best and you can you can open up a way for them to talk about what the person's flaws are in a way that's different than saying tell me what the person's flaws are
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to call out at this point. I mean, unlike firms that invest in pre-IPO, series C D rounds, I mean, you're investing at a stage where the character of the person and their vision and your conviction and their ability to build and lead a business is really the thing that you have to go on, correct? I mean, you don't have in many cases tons of history of performance and revenue growth at the company by the time you're coming in. It's it's still in the early, earliest stages.
1: Yeah, we're absolutely in the people picking business more than we are extrapolating a single or, a, or two years worth of financial performance into what's going to come seven eight years from now. There's just too much error in that. There's far less error in determining if the person that you're partnering with is going to work their tail off to go and build a generationally important company that you know has a real mission component to it. Like that, that's the important part of our job, and and you're making very long dated bets on people. You know, we're we're kind of in the income share, you know, business where, where we're betting on what a person's economic output is going to be over a decade long period. And we're fortunate to participate in a small way in, in that overall production.
0: So I want to shift gears one last time and spend the last few minutes we have together talking about kind of what the next three to five years might look like or five to 10 years from a technology perspective, obviously. Generative AI, large language models are, you know, top of mind for a lot of people. And if you kind of zoom out and look at real estate as an industry that has historically been slow to adopt technology from a kind of infrastructure perspective, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you know hundred billion dollar investment managers are running their business off of spreadsheets. And you fast forward to today to this quite rapid accel what seems to be a quite rapid acceleration of you know generative ai and and different kind of more modern technologies trying to kind of poke at or or shift the way that the industry functions what's your take on you know where we are today and then where you think we'll be in 5 to 10 years from a you know innovation perspective because you mentioned innovation is top of mind for everyone right now
1: I think a few things are unlikely to be wrong. I I think it's unlikely that real estate construction, retail organizations are going to spend a smaller percentage of their gross receipts on technology than a larger one. I think it is unlikely that the amount of collective brain power that's going into thinking about automation is going to be lower in the future than it is in, in, than it is today. And so you sort of can then fall out of like, well, what are the implications of that? My best guess is that AI is gonna take quite a while to get to a productized format, but then once it does, we're gonna see this sort of Cambrian explosion of new applications that are actually better than what those applications were when they were delivered with like a person in the middle. And so I've heard a few people talk about this as sort of technology eating parts of the service economy, which it has sort of been shut out of today. You know, Today, it's been selling software to the vendors in the service economy. But if it can actually use technology to be one of the vendors in the service economy, that's a very different market size. And I think it's possible that we're going to see the total addressable market of a bunch of different segments of technology grow, you know, by an order of magnitude by being able to perform services. I mean, not cuz you're paying me to do this, but you know, I think that it's possible that if Juniper Square can do some portion of fund administration or fund accounting in a fully automated way or a mostly automated way that expands your overall market opportunity like dramatically. And so I think part of the bet that we're making on mortgage processing, part of the bet we're making on brokerage or insurance placement, is that not all of these industries are going to be fully human mediated in the next five or 10 years. And some portion of them will be mediated by by technology. And that's going to yield tremendous cost savings for a bunch of people. And it's going to yield huge productivity gains. And that, that's really the, the bet of a lot of these technology investments is Increase productivity and reduce costs and you sort of get a profit pool that you can have a piece of, and that is going to be worth a lot of money. And that's that's I think what we're focused on. We have a few like very specific bets. you know we have a bet in a company called Crusoe that is providing infrastructure for all of this computational power that these AI companies need. They're having a tremendous year, may, maybe the best year in our portfolio uh, just because of how fast the demand for the AI compute is going. If I go back to Open Space, I think Open Space, you know, today, which is on fewer than one percent of construction projects, maybe on as much as five or ten percent of construction projects, because the product just keeps getting better and faster and cheaper and more capable of doing more amazing things. You know, Snap today participates in twenty-five percent of all mortgage transactions in the U.S. Maybe in five years, that's fifty percent. You know, it's like I, I think some of these bets are designed to capture the, the growth over the general five, 10-year period in, in automation. And then there's going to be a bunch of stuff that I never thought of or heard of that, that kind of emerges over the next few years. And that, that's kind of the fun part of my job. It's just every year, there's a lot of unexpected new ideas of someone whose brain works slightly differently than yours or mine and just sees, it, sees a new way to do something with a, a new technology development.
0: So perhaps the final question, because we're almost out of time, but what must... Change or start happening in order for our industry to get to the point where this Cambrian explosion is possible. Because right now, when I sit in a room with technology leaders, they're talking about things like the impact of the changing regulatory environment and cybersecurity and locking things down and restricting access to GPTs. And then, you know, at the same time, there's this. This challenge where organizations want to innovate, but they're being asked to do more with less, less people, sometimes less budgets, et cetera. So from the outsiders' perspective, it seems like there's a bit of a bid-ask spread between where we are and where we need to go to truly embrace some of this change. But from your vantage point, you know, as a venture investor, as someone who's working inside of these, you know, helping these operating businesses grow like what, and someone who's knowledgeable about our industry, like what is, what's your take on this dynamic or this shift that's existing in front of us right now?
1: I think it's more openness to swapping out the ways that you've done things in the past, just because it's what you know, like at some level, there's a psychological challenge that exists for every person to contemplate doing something in a new way versus how they've done it in the past. But if you really want to get to better solutions and more dynamic you know growth and and just more energy in a category like you have to be willing to at least test the new against the old and i still sense a lot of discomfort in changing your old property management solution changing your old property manager changing your old you know outsourced fund admin or accountant like there's just there's a lot of comfort that exists in doing things the way that you've done them in the past. And the consumer population writ large, I think, is more open to changing things up than the business population. And that's just because a level of conservatism exists in, in managing, you know, businesses. But I do think that a different generation that steps into power is more comfortable with this sort of constant evaluation and constant testing of new and better ways to do things that are that are digitally moderated. And that that's just going to yield faster growth and, and also a faster perception of how much innovation is happening in an old world category like, like real estate.
0: So that's a perfect closing note and great advice for all of our friends in the industry that we love to serve. If anybody listening to this podcast wants to learn more about Zig or wants to get in touch with you or a member of their, your team, what's the best way for them to find you and to do that?
1: Shoot me an email hello at ZigCap we will go to a bunch of folks on our team and we'll get it we'll get it routed the right way and i'm also on twitter linkedin all the various social media that zap so much of my time but they are a good way to meet new people and so feel free to ping me on those platforms
0: as well awesome well i've really enjoyed our conversation today dave thanks for joining me and until next time thank you brandon talk to you soon thanks for listening to the latest episode of the distribution by juniper square If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate the distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash I N forward slash B Sedloff, or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.